discussion is going to continue for a while. But let's bring our attention, let's bring our focus here to the Word today. And pray with me as we start, if you would. Grace family, this is sacred space and time. Let's pause. Take a deep breath. Make space. If you've entered this space today with fear, gently set that aside. For with God there is nothing to fear. If you've entered with shame today, release it. For God does not define us by our shame. If you have entered with pain today, acknowledge that. For God cares about your pain. Grace Church, we invite God the Spirit into our whole lives this morning. And may that love, that love of God, heal us. May the grace of God unite us. May the wisdom of God guide us. May the passion of God send us. In the name of God, our Creator, Christ, our Redeemer, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. In... 1978, Carl Walenda of the famous Flying Walenda family, circus and high wire trapeze artist, a whole family of them. Well, the Carl in 1978 fell to his death during a show in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Later, his wife said that after decades of success, decades of death-defying success, by focusing on walking on the high wire, Walenda started something he had never done before. He became obsessed with not falling. This focus of not falling, which has been, it's come to be known as the Walenda factor, is a form of forgetting. Forgetting about what is most important and what is central in one's work or even in one's life. At its core is a fear that distorts our values. Michael McNichols writes, sin, while described in various ways, whether personal or corporate, is at its heart a form of forgetting. Sin emerges through forgetting about God and allowing our eyes to relocate their attention to potential fears and failures and to attractions that glitter like gold. God knows this. Isaiah the prophet admonished the people of Israel, you have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor who has been on destruction. But where is the fury of the oppressor? Now Jesus knew this. And in our text, which you, there's a link there in the learning guide, you can click on it to take you to the text in Mark. Jesus knows the people have forgotten, and so he is, throughout his ministry, reminding them. He's asking questions, continually asking questions. Who do you say that I am? Who are you? What is reality? What does it mean to be great? And this week, he seems to be asking, what do you value? What have you forgotten about what is good and true and beautiful? So we pick up his action here in the text 
in Mark, where this is after Jesus has entered Jerusalem and is with his disciples. Starting in verse 12, it says, Then he began to speak to them in parables. Now, some of the parables of Jesus, as we know, are real head-scratchers. This one is not one of them. The meaning is quite obvious to the hearers, as we will see. He goes on and tells the story. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, and dug a pit for its wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his portion of the crop. But those tenants seized the slave and beat him, sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another slave to them again. This one they struck on the head and treated outrageously. He sent another one, and that one they killed. This happened to many others, some of whom were beaten, others killed. He had only one left, his one dear son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture, the stone which the silk builders rejected? has become the cornerstone. This is from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And I want to ask the kids that are watching, if you're there, you know, in the kids section, uh, we had you get your Legos out. Now, this is a really big Lego, just so you can see it on there. But what I want you to do is this. I want you to make just a simple structure, just a simple thing. And if you have that L-shaped piece, that really special one, I want you to start with that. But what I want you to do is make that one piece on the corner a different color than the rest. I want you to make all the rest one color, but that one on the end, that one on the corner, make it a different color. Because that represents who Jesus is, is the start, the foundation of all things. And he stands out. So do that if you're there at home. You can post a picture of it there in the, in the notes. Now this may seem like a pretty big shift when we go in this parable from a vineyard to a cornerstone, a temple. Until we understand that both the vineyard and the temple are images of the kingdom of God. And again, Jesus throughout his ministry is making this radical proclamation that the kingdom has indeed come. The kingdom of God is here. The thing that Israel longed for has come. And that Jesus, in fact, is the king of that kingdom. It's very clear from the parable, and the listeners knew, that he is saying that the vineyard is his. The vineyard is his. And he's also making the assertion that he is the foundation of the faith which the people claim to follow. The sobering result is that those who should have seen it, who should have welcomed him, have in fact resisted and rebelled. You see, N.T. Wright says this. He says, that's the image Jesus needs for this point, that he has come to do and to be. What he has come to do and to be can't be fitted into a different sort of building. And indeed, will be rejected by the builders, the scribes, the Pharisees, who have their own interest in mind. In this case, the chief priest determined to hang on to power and prestige. Mark uses this story as a further way of leading us on from Jesus' action in the temple to his, address, to his arrest, trial, and death, which we will celebrate culminating in his resurrection soon. But let's go on with the text. It says, Now they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd, 
because they realized that he told this parable against him. So they left and went away. You see, parables um, do things to us. They didn't seem to have this problem understanding what Jesus was saying, as we've seen in other places. Scholar Amy Jill Levine writes, the parable should disturb. If we hear it and are not disturbed, there is something seriously amiss with our moral compass. It would be better if we perhaps started by seeing the parable not about heaven or hell or final judgment, but about kings, politics, violence, and the absence of justice. If we do, we might get closer to Jesus. We might return and see what is truly valuable. Well, listen, they're not done. The, the, the leaders there, as a matter of fact, it says they went and sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to trap him in his own words. And we have to hold up there a minute to understand that Pharisees and Herodians do not get along. We've talked a lot here in the church about the conflict and the, the gulf between these two groups. This is like your rabid Trump supporters and your hardcore Hillary partisans hanging out and being all buddy-buddy together. I mean, it was a big shift for these two groups, yet they were both threatened by what Jesus was saying, and in that threat, they found unity. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and do not court anyone's favor because you show no partiality, but teach the ways of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But he saw through their hypocrisy and said to them, Why are you testing me? And Jesus does, as Jesus does, turns the test from being tested to testing those asking. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought him one and they said to him, Whose image is this and whose inscription? They replied, Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar's, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they were utterly amazed at him. Now again, if you've got kids watching at home, this is a great time to, to grab a coin. We've got a quarter here with George Washington's image on it. Take that, take the paper, do the rubbing. See what image you get. I think that's apropos for a lot of what God is doing here. A lot of what Jesus is doing is he's saying, what image do you see? What image do you see in, this, in Caesar? What image do you see in God? What image do you see in yourself with this? You see, the Jews said that no man is God. As a matter of fact, we're told all throughout the Old Testament, make no graven image. It's one of the, the Decalogue, one of the Ten Commandments. And they thought that there was one God, unknowable, unseeable, un, not even his name mentionable, and that men were far from God. But on the other side of that coin, the Romans said, Caesar is God. There is indeed a man who is God, and it is Caesar they would go through town, and town to town proclaiming Caesar is Lord. That Lord wasn't just political, it was religious in that. That's one of the reasons why the proclamation Jesus is Lord is so radical in its inference. But Jesus said something different. Jesus said, I am God and all of y'all reflect my image. See, it's very different from denying that man is 
made in the image of God or that man can be God, when we see Jesus as God, a man fully divine, fully human, and then understand that each of us, male, female, all of us, reflect that image, it brings things into balance. And it answers the question, what do we owe to Caesar? What do we owe to man? What do we owe to these things? We have to first understand who we are and whose we are. And then we can learn to properly order those allegiances, properly order our affections, our affiliations with that, starting first with our allegiance to God and all things that come from God. Working out our obligations to God, ourselves, and each other is only possible when we remember who is who. And these revelations were what utterly amazed them. They, it broke their whole way of thinking. It broke their paradigm of us versus them. It broke their paradigm of God up here and man down here. It brought the things together in a way that radically challenged their imagination. They saw also with lightning revelation that they were indeed the wicked tenants They were the ones totally wrong about what they owed and to whom they owed it. This testing came from what Jesus among them revealed about their values, those values to be corrupt, misplaced. It proved that they had forgotten who they were, to whom they belonged, and in whose image they were made. So what about us? Gathered in our homes, watching on our phones and our computers, this morning. What about us? Where are we in this? And why does Mark set this parable next to this interaction, the parable of the vineyard and the teaching on the talent? Because both have to do with value. The tenants came to value the vineyard as theirs, to do with whatever they wanted from, with it, to profit from it, to own it. Even though it wasn't theirs, they came to value it as theirs. They came to resent having to pay what they owe to the true owner. And they go to murderous ends to hold on to what they have. They forgot and resented who the true owner was. The Pharisees and the Herodians, both in their own ways, value their political position as the right one, one they must ruthlessly maintain and justify. They forget who they really were and who they were supposed to be serving They saw their position, their religion, their politics as a way of self-preservation, as a way of pride of ownership. Well, again, what about us? What is it that we truly value? You see, Jesus was telling the tenants they forgot who they were and who owned the vineyard. He was telling the Pharisees and the Herodians whose image they were created in, and how that orders their responsibilities. What are we hearing as we read these words? And not just in a hypothetical or theological sense, but right now. Right now in the midst of a society and a world that is undergoing a radical shaking. What does this speak to our situation today? Well, we need to remember that whenever persecution, whenever plague, whenever testing comes in the Bible, it is not a storm to be weathered so that the people can return to the way they were. 
Let me say that again. The storms, the testing, the plagues, the exiles in the Bible were not something just to be endured, something to be weathered so that at the end the people could return to the way things were. No, it's always a call to come together in a new way, to order ourselves in a different way, to survive. And not just to survive, but so those who have been left out can flourish. Those who have been marginalized can be brought back in. Those who have held on to power exclusively for their own good can be brought down. Those who have been oppressed can be lifted up. That's what these times were to do. Friends, what in this storm right now is helping us to reimagine the way that we are supposed to order ourselves? What is this helping us see more clearly? See, in a way, and we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, I believe this time is kind of a forced Sabbath. And we've talked about this before at Grace Church, how, how Sabbath is the one commandment that we, that we almost totally ignore. And I know, speaking of Sabbath, to the mom who's at home and trying to work at home with kids and homeschool and do those things, it doesn't feel very restful. I understand that. But we all know that this is a radical reordering, a cessation of doing certain things that compelled and controlled us before. Friends, we cannot miss this lesson. The thing that terrifies me the most about our current situation is that we will miss it. That we will long, so deeply long for things to return to exactly the way they were before. That we will just rush headlong back into our frenzied, self-centered, individualistic, overburdened ways. Friends, we have to stop. We are being given an opportunity that may only come once in our generation to stop to pause, to consider what we value. And we have to be intentional about this or we will sink back so easily, so quickly into the forgetfulness of this world. We will forget once again who God really is and who we really are. What do I fear more than this disruption? that we would just return to the way things were and not have learned a cotton-picking thing. (sighs) Y'all, to get through this, to really flourish, as we talked about last week, we're going to have to remember. And that remembering takes us to a new and different future that will unfold. You see, God is inviting us to have an imagination for a different future. Friends, we have to let go of the fear. We have to let go of the pining for things just to return to normal, whatever that was. We have to extend our imaginations in a way we never thought, extend our ambitions our beyond ourselves because it's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. And it's about all of us together remembering who we are, who God is, and whose we are. Each of us made an image, good, true, and beautiful God. 
one of the ways that we remember each week is by three things. Here at Grace Church, we take time to pause and reflect, and I want to encourage you to do that. In the learning guide, there are questions for personal reflections to ask as a group. I want, you to, I want to encourage you to do that this week. But if God is telling you something right now, if you're feeling like you need to do something right now, write it down, commit to it. Don't let this time go by without responding. The other thing is we give an offering here. Now, obviously, we can't pass a plate, but there is a place online where you can give your offering. And we do this primarily as sign. Sign that no one here is without something to give. And none of us are without need. We all have need. Sharing is the basis of Christian community. Giving and receiving, not buying and selling. So we give offering, not just obligatory, but as a sign of worship. And then we come together around the table. We remember by taking the body and blood of Jesus into our own bodies. See, on that last night when he was gathered with his disciples, Jesus took the cup and he took the bread and he blessed it. He gave his disciples, he gave us, followers of Jesus, this thing to do so that we would remember, so that we would not once again forget and that's why we take this. So I ask you to take your elements at your home. Listen, take what you have. Take what you have there. It doesn't have to look like this. It doesn't have to taste like this. But what you do is you take it in the same spirit, knowing that this table is open to everyone. Jesus was the ultimate host, is the ultimate host. Jesus welcomes everybody. And there is no place of honor here. There's no cover charge. There's no seating chart. We're all welcome. So take what you have. Know that this is his body. Broken for us. Broken for you. Know that this is his blood poured out as the sign of the new covenant. Given for you. So take and eat. Eat.